Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone. Today I'm going to talk about a fairy tale that I'm calling The Three Princesses. I didn't plan this, but this first season of the podcast is going to have a disproportionate number of fairy tales that fit the animal bridegroom folklore category, which is my favorite category, and that includes this tale. I'll give some background on the fairy tale, and then I'll read aloud my own version or iteration of it. After that, I'll talk about how a Christian artist could approach retelling this fairy tale by referencing the truth and beauty or ethics and aesthetics of the Word of God, the Bible. I'll talk about three aspects of the tale we can approach through scripture, the land, sky, and sea trinity, the villain, and the breaking of the enchantment. So for some background on this tale, I first read this fairy tale when I was reading through Grimm's collection in late winter, early spring, prepping for the podcast and making a list of fairy tales I wanted to talk about. I didn't realize it at the time, but I had picked Jack Zipes' translation or edition which actually takes the oldest version of Grimm's, the very first, the 1812, not the latest and last version, 1857, which most people are familiar with. And that's important because this fairy tale, which is number 82 in Jack Sipes' translation, is not included in the 1857 edition. As I'm telling, or not retelling yet, but as I'm giving the original fairy tale, I'm trying very hard to avoid copyright issues. So what I usually do is go in and find a bunch of versions of the tale online, read them all, and then restate it in my own words. This one took more digging. I couldn't find it at first, but I went back and found the grim sources for the tale. There's a German one, an Italian one, and read them. And then I found some other variants from around the world I didn't use quite as much. And then I wrote my own iteration of it. So I'll link those sources in the show notes. But I tell you this because this whole research exercise did something for me. I realized just how much variation there is in the animals and the other images involved and what each different creature or uh, action does to the meaning and atmosphere of the whole story. In, In telling my own version of this fairy tale, I'm kind of trying to put myself in the role of a nice grandmother in the Middle Ages, entertaining her grandchildren by the hearth, or a scop, a bard, in a warlord's hall like in Beowulf, or perhaps a traveling minstrel. And that means I get to choose how to shape this story. So as I talk about each image, I'll tell why I chose that one and what inspiration that might give fellow artists when they retell this story. So here it is. There are different titles used in the different versions, three sisters, three animal kings, three princes, three sons-in-law. I'm calling it the three princesses. The three princesses. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy king who lived with his queen and three daughters. The king's riches were so great, he believed they were without end. So he gambled his gold for pleasure. He lost gold and gems, diamonds and pearls until he was forced to mortgage and then sell his many castles and estates. His family had to move into an old hunting lodge on the edge of a wood. One day, the king decided to go hunting to provide meat for their meager table. He went into the wood and tried to shoot a deer that bounded across his path. 
His shot went wide, for an enormous lion pounced from the shadows and knocked the bow from his hands. How dare you enter my realm and disturb my creatures, the lion growled. You will pay for this with your life. Please, said the king, I have a wife and three daughters with no one else to care for them. The lion considered. Give me your eldest daughter for a wife, he said, and I will let you live and give you a hundred pounds of gold. Terrified, the king agreed. When he went home, he was too ashamed to tell his wife and daughters of the bargain. Without explaining why, he had his eldest daughter move into a small servant's room on the side of the lodge opposite the wood and kept the doors locked and bolted. One day, the king was walking in the garden and saw a coach leaving the hunting lodge and going into the wood. The coach was made of wood itself and was pulled by six deer. The driver was a young man in armor with a coat of arms of leaves on his shield. The king saw his eldest daughter in the window of the coach. He called for them to stop, but it was too late. His eldest daughter was gone. When the king went into the courtyard, he found a wooden chest there filled with a hundred pounds of gold the lion had promised. The king and queen and the remaining two daughters mourned for the eldest, but could not find her. The king used the hundred pounds of gold to recover his lost wealth, but soon after, he returned to his gambling ways and lost it all over again. They returned to the hunting lodge at the edge of the wood. One day, the king decided to go hunting to provide meat for their meager table. He went into the wood and sent his falcon after a duck he saw flying overhead. A great eagle swooped from high heaven and crushed the falcon in its claws. How dare you trespass in my realm and disturb my creatures, the eagle croaked. You will pay for this with your life. Please, said the king, I have a wife and two daughters with no one else to care for them. The eagle considered. Give me your middle daughter for a wife, he said, and I will let you live and give you two hundred pounds of gold. Terrified, the king agreed. When he went home, he was too ashamed to tell his wife and daughters of the bargain. Without explaining why, he had his middle daughter move into a small upper room and kept the doors locked and bolted. One day, the king was looking out the window and saw a coach leaving the hunting lodge and going into the wood. The coach was made of iron and was pulled by six griffins. The driver was a young man in armor with a coat of arms of feathers on his shield. The king saw his middle daughter in the window of the coach. He called for them to stop, but it was too late. His middle daughter was gone. When the king went into the courtyard, he found an iron chest there. The chest held two enormous golden eggs, each a hundred pounds, the gold the eagle had promised. The king and queen and the remaining daughter mourned for their two lost daughters, but could not find them. The king used the two hundred pounds of gold to recover his lost wealth, but soon after, he returned to his gambling ways and lost it all over again. They returned to the hunting lodge at the edge of the wood. One day, the king decided to go fishing to provide meat for their meager table. He went into the wood and dropped his fishing line into a great lake he found there. A huge whale burst from the lake and snapped his fishing pole. How dare you violate my realm and try to trap my creatures, the whale boomed. You will pay for this with your life. Please, said the king, I have a wife and daughter with no one else to care for them. The whale considered. Give me your daughter for a wife, he said, and I will let you live and give you three hundred pounds of pearls. Terrified, the king agreed. When he went home, he was too ashamed to tell his wife and daughter of the bargain. Without explaining why, he had his youngest daughter move into a small windowless room at the center of the lodge and kept the doors locked and bolted. One day, the king was walking by the moat and saw a coach leaving the hunting lodge and going into the wood. The coach was made of crystal and was pulled by six shining white horses. The driver was a young man in armor 
with a coat of arms of scales on his shield. The king saw his youngest daughter in the window of the coach. He called for them to stop, but it was too late. His youngest daughter was gone. When the king went into the courtyard, he found three sacks there. The sacks held 300 pounds of shining white pearls, as the whale had promised. The king and queen mourned their three daughters, but could not find them. The king used the 300 pounds of pearls to recover his lost wealth, but he never gambled again. They stayed in the hunting lodge at the edge of the wood in the hope of seeing their daughters again. A year later, the queen gave birth to a boy. They named him Rainer and called him the Child of Miracle. Rainer grew up strong and handsome and full of curiosity about his lost sisters. When he came of age, he decided to go find them and rescue them if he could. He went into the wood and wandered far and wide until he came upon a cave. At the entrance sat a beautiful woman who looked like him. She held a lion cub in her lap and another plate at her side. He greeted her at once and determined that she was his eldest sister. Run while you can, said his eldest sister. My husband is a man one day out of seven and is good and kind. But the other six days, he is an enormous lion, fierce and wild to strangers. He will kill you if he finds you. Rainer did not want to leave her, so his eldest sister hid him in a pile of dry leaves in the cave. Her husband the lion came home and smelled man, but could not find him, so they all went to sleep in the cave. In the morning, Rainer woke up not in a pile of leaves in a cave, but in a soft bed in a golden castle in the wood. It was the seventh day. His brother-in-law, the lion, had turned human again and greeted him with joy. They had a marvelous day of talk and laughter and feasting, but that evening, his eldest brother-in-law sent him away from the castle. I am not safe to strangers when I am a lion, he told Rainer. Go and find your other sisters and break our enchantment if you can. Rainer's brother-in-law gave him three hairs left from his lion form. When you are in trouble, rub those and I will come and help you, he said. Rainer left and wandered the wood until he came to a mountain. He climbed up until he could see, on the highest crag, a nest as big as a house. A beautiful woman who looked like him sat there, holding an egg in her lap to keep it warm. Rainer called to her and determined that she was his middle sister. She let down a rope ladder for him to climb. Climb down while you still can, she urged him, after they had talked a while and the sun was setting. My husband is a man one week out of seven and is good and kind, but the other six weeks he is a great eagle, fierce and wild to strangers. He will kill you if he finds you. Rainer did not want to leave her, so his middle sister hid him in a pile of twigs at the edge of the nest. Her husband the eagle came home and heard a man's breathing, but could not find him, so they all went to sleep in the nest. In the morning, Rainer woke up not in a pile of twigs at the edge of a nest, but in a soft bed and a silver castle on the edge of a cliff. It was the first day of the seventh week. His brother-in-law, the eagle, had turned human again and greeted him with joy. They had a marvelous six weeks of talk and laughter and feasting, but as the sixth week ended, his middle brother-in-law sent him away from the castle. I am not safe to strangers when I am an eagle, he told Rainer. Go and find your other sister and break our enchantment if you can. Rainer's brother-in-law gave him three feathers left from his eagle form. When you are in trouble, rub those and I will come and help you, he said. Rainer left and climbed down the mountain until he came to a lake. He dived into it and saw a house of crystal at the bottom with a great chimney that led to the surface. He swam to the top of the chimney and slid down it until he landed in the fireplace of the crystal house. A beautiful woman who looked like him sat there 
combing the fur of a little seal. Raina determined that this was his youngest sister. Swim away while you can, she urged him after they had talked a while. My husband is a man one month out of seven and is good and kind, but the other six months he is a whale, fierce and wild to strangers. He will kill you if he finds you and smash this house so the water pours in. Rainer did not want to leave her, so his youngest sister hid him in some sacks of wheat in their pantry. Her husband, the whale, came swimming around the crystal house and saw part of Rainer's cloak sticking out from the sacks of wheat. He angrily struck his tail against the wall, making the whole house shake, but swam away again. Rainer finally went to sleep. In the morning, Rainer woke up, not among sacks of wheat in a crystal house under water, but in a soft bed in a crystal castle on an island at the center of the lake. It was the first day of the seventh month. His brother-in-law, the whale, had turned human again and greeted him with joy. They had a marvelous six months of talk and laughter and feasting, but as the six month ended, his youngest brother-in-law sent him away from the castle. I am not safe to strangers when I am a whale, he told Rainer. Go and break our enchantment if you can. Rainer's brother-in-law gave him three fish scales left over from his whale form. When you are in trouble, rub those and I will come and help you, he said. Rainer wandered by the shore of the lake until he came to a castle of black rock. As he approached, a dragon lunged at him. Rainer drew his sword and fought as best he could, but the dragon was too strong and fast for him and drove him into a thicket of thorns. In desperation, he drew the three lion hairs from his pocket and rubbed them. His brother-in-law, the lion, appeared and, roaring, ripped the dragon pieces with his claws. From the body of the dragon flew a vulture. Rainer rubbed the three eagle feathers, and his brother-in-law, the eagle, appeared and slew the vulture. From the body of the vulture dropped an egg into the waters of the lake. Rainer rubbed the three fish scales, and his brother, the whale, reared up from the lake, grabbed the egg in its jaws, and spat it out on the ground. Rainer picked up the egg and cracked it. There was a black key inside. Rainer took the key and opened the castle door. He went through seven gates and seven rooms until he came to a room where a beautiful princess lay asleep. Rainer tried to wake her, but she was enchanted. He saw a black slate lying on the floor, picked it up, and shattered it. The princess awoke. I am the sister of your brothers-in-law, she explained, after Rainer told her his story. I refused to marry a wicked sorcerer, and he enchanted me with sleep and my brothers with wild shapes until someone broke the spell. Rainer took the princess home, and they married. His brothers-in-law remained in human form, and they and Rainer's sisters and their children all returned home to the joy of their mother and father. The princes and princesses had only aged when they were in human form, so they all lived together for many years, happily ever after. I love this story, and there are so many things I could have talked about. I decided to focus first on the land and sky and sea imagery. As I said, I wrote my version of this tale after reading a few variants, and one of the main varying things in the variants was the animals, the wild beasts that the brothers-in-law turned into, and the creature that the main character faces at the end. I should add that in some variants from around the world, like the Czech Republic, Russia, a few other places, the sisters actually marry the sun, moon, and wind, or wind, thunder, and lightning, or three birds, or something else. But I stuck with the beasts of the European versions that I found at first. So the Grimm, the other German, and then the Italian versions I found are pretty consistent. The brothers-in-law turn into a land creature, a sky creature, and a sea creature. So a lion, bear, or stag for the first prince, an eagle or falcon for the second, and a whale or dolphin for the third. 
I decided to make mine a lion, an eagle, and a whale for a specific reason, because it seemed that it was important that these were deadly predators. That's the point of the animal bridegroom folklore category. The fact that the husband is an animal is the problem, and the victory is that he becomes human and stays human. Also, within the tale itself, there's more dramatic tension if Rainer is threatened by three dangerous creatures who are threatening to strangers, at least. So I went with the more dangerous creatures. For the land creature, I chose the lion. Not the lion of Judah, who is Christ, but the lion as a natural enemy. So like when David said in 1 Samuel 17, that the Lord delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, that kind of lion. For the sky creature, I chose an eagle. Not really the eagle as God represents himself in Deuteronomy 32.11, which is fluttering over its young, catching them and burying them on his pinions, but more like the eagle simile in Lamentations 4. So this is verse 19. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The water creature was the hardest to decide on because, as you no doubt noticed, uh, whales don't live in lakes. Another option was a dolphin, uh, but again, I needed scary creatures and dolphins are just too cute. So as I was thinking through this, googling maybe water creatures, what could represent water in this tale, I had this weird thought. What if this was a different creature in very old versions of this story that have been lost? A dangerous water creature that lives in a lake and has scales because whales also don't have scales what if somehow this was originally some kind of lake monster like the loch ness monster i have no way of verifying that but it is kind of fun to think about what if there was some old memory lingering in this fairy tale that we've lost i thought about making this creature a leviathan or a water dragon but i realized that's probably the wrong image for this part of the tale this brother-in-law is supposed to be a predator maybe the most deadly of the three since there's an escalation going on, but not the main villain, and the leviathan or dragon is just too heavy for that. So I went with a whale, even though it's biologically inaccurate. I could have made this part of the tale happen on the ocean, on the edge of the sea, but it seemed important that the three creatures and settings are contained within one magic wood, kind of like in, in the Shakespeare play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's really important that they're all within one magic forest. So I'm just going to plead fairy tale logic on the whale in this one. Fairy tales are not pretending to be scientifically accurate. They're spiritually and symbolically meaningful. So we have a whale, kind of like the great fish that swallowed Jonah. So there you have it, the lion, the eagle, and the whale. And these represent three aspects of creation. So here I went to scripture and I started thinking about creation as a whole. The Bible begins with God as creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 continues as this beautiful poem that outlines God creating light, day and night, heaven, earth, the sea, vegetation, the sun, moon, and stars, sea creatures, birds, beasts, livestock, creeping things, and man in his own image. And he gave man dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God makes things out of nothing, ex nihilo, but part of his making is distinguishing and separating things like the waters of the heavens from the waters of the sea. So when I see land, sky, and sea named and described in a story, especially when they're three settings and they're episodic, I see something captured about the glorious totality of creation, the fullness of what God made, the unity and diversity. 
And I really love this. I love stories that have this pattern or set of things that they're all in the same, well, set, but they're distinct. So gold, silver, and bronze, or air, water, fire, earth, or red, blue, yellow. There's something very satisfying about the distinction and similarity in that structure. And I think the sense of completeness and contrast testifies to the nature of creation because it all fits together but there's so many different species, biomes, seasons, rhythms, and it all glorifies a creative and abundant God. The rule of three also echoes the perfect three of the Trinity, the Godhead, three and one. So this pattern of land, sky, and sea in your story gives you so much to work with. It's a good example of how structure actually gives you freedom. So I can think of maybe a sci-fi retelling that plays with different planets. That would be a lot of fun or a time travel story that has different ages. Um, There's a Diana Wynne Jones book. She's a British author who has a book like that. Or fantastic settings, like in J.R. Tolkien's arguably most underrated book, Roverandom, in which the main character visits the moon and the ocean, and both are really elaborate, intricate, beautiful settings. But whatever you do with the three creatures, the three princesses, and these three settings, as intricate or whimsical or vast as you make them, think about the distinction and diversity of creation. Also think about how the fourth figure, the miracle child who I named Rainer in my story, comes from outside that totality of creation and intervenes in a way that changes and redeems all of it, changing beasts into humans, saving three marriages, and bringing all the lost children back home. Kind of like the Holy Spirit does using the church. Uh, the book of Acts is all about that. As a note, I named this miracle child Rainer because one of my sources called him Reinhardt, which means brave counsel or strength of advice. And another German source called him Roland, which is famous throughout the land. So I wanted our name that had a similar meaning. So I went with Rainer, deciding warrior, and also because of the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Anyway, in a fairy tale retelling of this tale, Have fun shaping land and sky and sea settings and characters as fully distinct as fully themselves, just as much as a linden tree is fully a linden tree, or a starfish is completely a starfish. But also think about how each world or each setting is broken and needs redemption from that fourth figure, the Redeemer. Second image I'll talk about, the villain. When it comes to shaping the villain of this story, whatever thing the main character defeats at the end to wake the princess and break the enchantment, there's an important principle of matching at stake. I was reading Russian folklorist Vladimir Propp's book, The Morphology of the Folktale. So he has this complicated system in which he's classified the various functions of a fairy tale. So functions like an absence at the beginning of a tale, something or someone is gone, an interdiction, Don't do something like, oh, don't open that mysterious door, which is always violated. Someone always opens the mysterious door. Or a lack. Something is needed. Like, oh, I wish I could have a child. When it comes to the resolution of the fairy tale, he says something interesting about how a fairy tale does that. He says there are certain patterns or functions that are always linked. So those that are linked are an interdiction, a command, and its violation. Someone says, don't go into the magic wood. And of course, the main character always goes into the magic wood. The attempt to find out something and the transmission of information. Deception or fraud by the villain and the hero's reaction to it. Fight and victory. Marking and recognition. 
He also says that there are varieties that are permanently connected. He names these as murder and resuscitation, enchantment and the breaking of a spell, and he also mentions that there are others. So in relation to our fairy tale, this insight about matching, about how things always go together, made me notice that the animal bridegroom figures and the shape-shifting villain match each other. In the versions that I read, the land creature, the eldest brother-in-law, defeats the first shape of the villain, and then the villain turns into, or, or a sky creature flies out of the body, uh, so like a bird, and the middle brother-in-law defeats that, and then out comes an egg, it's always an egg, that the sea creature brother-in-law picks up from the water and brings to shore, and that's where the key is. So I really like it when the beast shapes of the brothers-in-law match the shapes of the villain really closely in ways that make sense, but it was a little difficult to get that perfectly. So as for what the villain was, though I, I named it as a dragon in my version. That's from the Pentamerone, the Italian version, if you know your, your folklore. Because dragons are just such great villains. I mean, Satan, the dragon of scripture, Revelation 12. But Musos, who's the other German source I had, had it as a lion. And the Grimms actually had it as a black bull, which is really funny considering the previous episode I did on the Black Bull of Norway and how I waxed eloquent about how he's such a wonderful character. Well, here uh, the Grimms had him as, as the villain. So in the variants I'm reading, the evil dragon or lion or bull fights the lion bear stag at first. You can see I, I had a little bit of trouble. I was just choosing my creatures. And then out flies a bird that is defeated by the eagle. And then of course the egg. So I ended up choosing lion dragon, eagle vulture, and whale egg for my tail. A lion fighting a dragon just kind of seemed to make sense in my head. It fit. Uh, for the eagle vulture, I really like how the vulture is a creature of death went against the eagle, um, this creature of vision and pride. And I was pretty much stuck with the whale and the egg. I don't think that was the best matching, but as I said, there's something very suspicious about that water creature. And anyway, the egg is a whole nother story. I'm not going to talk about the significance there, maybe a later episode. But anyway, not to confuse things, I wanted to talk about the principle of matching in relation to the problem and solution and also the hero and the villain. This is a gospel principle. Over and over in the typology of scripture, we see how Christ is the perfect solution, the perfect savior, the perfect redeemer for the problem of sin and evil and rebellion. For example, Christ, the second Adam, resisted three temptations in the wilderness, in contrast to the first Adam, who gave in to temptation in the Garden of Eden and ate the forbidden fruit. The hero defeats the villain. And there's this extra satisfaction, kind of um, like puzzle-solving pleasure, if the hero uses the villain's own weapons against him. Like in this case, shape-shifting. But the fairy tale also shows an aspect of grace as well, beyond just a simple matching. Because Christ as the second Adam is much more than a man equal to Adam doing the right thing this time. Christ is God incarnate. So he surpasses the first Adam in power and perfection, as well as in victory. In this tale, I saw grace in the fact that the miracle child needs the help of his brothers-in-law to defeat the dragon. So in summary, as you craft your villain, you can maybe help yourself either brainstorm or refine your second draft by thinking about the ways in which your villain matches your hero, physically, intellectually, spiritually you may be able to expand on or deepen qualities in both the hero and the villain, like vision, possessive love, fear of cowardice, or a dread of change in creative ways, 
when you're thinking this way and have a lot of fun with it too. Third image, the breaking of the enchantment. Playing around with the creatures and villain and the language of this tale made me very conscious of how important this image is, the breaking of the enchantment, but also how you can translate it in many ways. Again, according to Vladimir Prop, there are certain things in a fairy tale that always go together. The interdiction and its violation, the battle and its victory, the enchantment and its breaking. But when you have the wealth of scripture expanding your imagination, there are many ways to break an enchantment. In this case, the spell is broken by a piece of black slate, a rock, being broken. It reminds me of Exodus 17, Moses striking the rock at Horeb so that fresh water gushed out for the people of Israel in the wilderness. It reminds me of Psalm 118, 22-23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It reminds me of 1 Peter 2, which takes that verse and other passages from Isaiah to explain that Christ is the living stone for believers. The rock is broken as Christ was broken at his crucifixion. And the princess wakes from her death-like sleep. So rescue and resurrection together. Again, as I said, restating, reiterating this fairy tale made me conscious of how the scriptural imagination allows you to play and dream on a grander scale. A stone being broken and a princess waking from her death-like sleep is a great way to break the spell and turn the animal bridegrooms human again. But depending on whatever world and history and language and more elaborate action you're having in, in the world of your fairy tale retelling, you may find another kind of image for the breaking of an enchantment that fits better and is still true to the spirit of the tale. For example, George MacDonald's book, The Princess and Curdie, The Rose Fire, which burns bright and beautiful as an excruciatingly painful, is the deliverance from the beastly shapes that people turn into when they allow unchecked evil to grow inside them. In other words, the spell of metamorphosis is broken through a baptism of fire. In the traditional Beauty and the Beast tale, it's true love or true love's kiss that breaks the spell. How does God deliver us from sin? How does he change us from rebels and enemies to sons and daughters? Grace is grace, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But images for grace or salvation include ransoming a captive, baptism, death and resurrection, water becoming wine, crossing a river into a promised land, blind gaining sight, the leprous gaining radiant healthy skin, and of course there are many more. So enjoy this play, chase your ideas, build out your world as elaborately as you wish, especially in a first draft. But if you're stuck with a plot point or an image, this concept of, of matching and the idea of different images for the breaking of enchantment or for redemption may help you. Let one image complete another. Let the physical objects and places you've made in your story guide you to the act of deliverance that breaks the spell, like rags becoming shining new clothes or the stone heart becoming flesh. So that's the three princesses fairy tale, the land, sky, and sea creatures, the villain, and the breaking of the enchantment. There are other images I wanted to talk about, like the foolish father who ruins his family and needs a kinsman redeemer to come help save them the rule of seven or Sabbath, the miracle child and the chosen one trope, but I will leave those for another time. Thanks for listening. Join again next time to learn more about retelling fairy tales according to the truth and beauty of the Bible.